Hello, this is Craig McGrother, the host of the Capital Spotlight Podcast. Yes, that's right, the Capital Spotlight Podcast. So we've done five episodes, we're revamping the show. You'll hear several times in the first five episodes, Riffs with Rob, hosted by Craig. That is not the name. We're going back to the original name. So we're absolutely thrilled and excited to be bringing this show back. Uh, We're going to go over a lot of fun things. We'll have some guests sprinkled in there. Uh, But what we're most excited about is to, of course, have a long kind of open forum, conversation-like style on really great real estate topics, uh, you know, far and wide. And uh, we'll really be able to unpack that. In addition to, of course, the real estate concepts, what we're also really excited about and I'm most excited about is kind of showing off um, and displaying more of who Rob is as a person, as a man. Um, Clearly, you know, being at his age and being that successful, there's a lot more than just the business and the uh, nature of that. So we're incredibly excited to be showcasing that. We're incredibly excited to, you know, dive into some topics and go really deep into some things and also have a good laugh, have a good banter, keep it appropriate, of course. So we're just absolutely thrilled. We're really looking forward to have you come on and listen to the show. Should you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, or even themes for a topic, we would be open to them. Uh, And maybe if you want to be a guest on the show, you can reach out to myself. So we look forward to having you on the Capital Spotlight Podcast. Not Riffs with Rob, hosted by Craig, but the Capital Spotlight Podcast. This is episode zero. We look forward to having you on soon. Hello, everyone. My name is Craig McGrother with... Rob Beardsley. And this is episode one. Uh, This is a new idea and concept. Riffs with Rob, hosted by Craig. Uh, The premise of this show is to talk about Lone Star Capital, of course, which uh, obviously we're at the principal right here, uh, to just dive into real estate, and also show a little bit more of a personal side on both of us. So without further ado, why don't you introduce yourself and let everyone know who you are. Absolutely. So my name is Rob Beardsley. I'm the founder of Lone Star Capital. We're currently here in Cabo for Hunter Thompson's Capital Collective Mastermind Retreat. And we were so inspired by the other people in the room, the content, and we figured, you know what, it's about time that we start our own podcast. Yeah, exactly. And I think this is actually... A long time coming. I'm a huge podcast person. I'm always kind of listening to something and whatnot. So I figure, you know, I like to talk with my friends. Obviously, Rob's one of my best friends, so why not create a show? Uh, but moreover, to, you know, create something great that hopefully, you know, builds a nice big audience and, and whatnot. So I love it. This is uh, something, as I said, a long time coming. Yeah. Yep. It's okay. Oh, no cigar? Okay, that's fine. Yeah. No, all good. Yeah. No, no problem. It smells so good, doesn't it? I know, it? yeah. Well, no yeah. cigar today. No cigar. So we'll, we'll definitely be doing more podcasts in the future with cigar. But... Yes, a lot of cigar talk, uh, a lot of other talk as well. But I wanted to kind of show another side of Rob that most people don't see as he can come off uh, very professional. And he is a very professional person, but it would be nice to show another side and also just discuss what's going on in our lives. But as I said, real estate is uh, the focal point of it. So... Yeah, so, and just to build on that, it, it is so important, unfortunately, to portray the personal side of things these days through our content because people don't really 
go out seeking to consume content that is in the weeds, hyper-technical, and really shows your true display of domain expertise, right? And so while uh, you would think as a content creator looking to establish your credibility in a space, you'd say, well, the more technical content I provide, the more uh, domain knowledge I'm able to share, the more I'm going to build my credibility and the more successful I'll be. The unfortunate nature of that is I think when you speak publicly and just your content, is the compliment, but also it's a downfall, is that it's almost too technical, and I think a lot of things go over people's head, uh, that being me included. Sometimes you say things, and it's so much to unpack, there's so much, so many nuggets to pull from it, but it's way too uh, dense, if you will, so to have it be broken out more and digestible would be great, as well as you know letting people know who you are. Do you want to tilt your chair a little bit inward? And yeah, we'll we could be like a little more inward? Yeah, we could do that. You could do that. I think. I think now that there's no cigar, I think the audience will like it more if we're, you know, a little talking, talking to each other more, each other more okay. creating more organic conversation rather than talking at a camera. Fair play. Uh, but yeah, so that's that. I think is a very valuable thing to introduce and and bring more of the personal side because obviously people don't invest into deals; they invest into, into people. people. As funny as it is to that, it, it kind of makes you makes your stomach turn and maybe boils your blood. I can't speak for you when everyone talks about. Well, what's the story? What's the story? And I guess it really is important to a lot of people. I think you just care about the numbers and buying it well. Shout out to Sam, Sam Zell, uh, RIP. But I think that's more of who you are. So let's show people the other side of you. Yeah. Yeah, so to pick up kind of more on the on the background, like, like I mentioned, I'm the founder of Lone Star Capital. Uh, my business partner, Kent, and I, we started Lone Star five years ago to focus on owning, owning and operating Texas workforce housing. The firm is based in New York City. And that's where I, I live and work. And uh, the business, however, is 100% focused on Texas, as you know. And so we've been very successful in buying uh, Houston and Dallas multifamily. Over the last five years, we've acquired nearly $400 million in assets. And also a couple years ago in 2021, we vertically integrated, which means we brought our property management operations in-house. So we have really a lot of things under our umbrella, a lot of responsibilities. Uh, but thankfully, we've built a fantastic team, including yourself. Thank you. Uh, which has made us into a well-oiled machine. So why don't you share uh, what your role in the company is? Yeah, absolutely. So prior to doing Lone Star Capital and being fortunate enough to work with an up-and-coming uh, rising star of a firm uh, with you and Kent at the head, uh, I was doing residential real estate for seven years uh, in the Bay Area and in Scottsdale. I was actually a top 1% performer uh, in Arizona prior to switching over, selling homes, uh, this, my kind of story on this is funny. One day, I was getting beat up over a $500 home warranty, which I walked my client through, a contract acceptance on the listing agent side, which I was. And 17 days later in escrow, someone or I got a call from the seller saying, hey, uh, you didn't go over that. And I reassured them I did, but in good faith, I wanted to make everyone happy and appease. Uh, I, I ended up eating the fee. So I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that. Uh, that same day though when that happened, I called Rob just to kind of vent because we speak every day on the phone, uh, like school rules if you will, uh, and uh, we speak every day and he was telling me about how he that day had a $50,000 problem and it was one of those shifts where I'd rather have the $50,000 problem, not the $500 problem. So from there, I think we always did kind of speak about how cool it would be if we had an opportunity and it made sense to work together, uh, but I think at that point we really started to get a little more serious. We were kind of 
dancing on the line and then it, it became a lot more practical like okay well when is that what does it look like from a timetable perspective when do you need someone to come in so that said that was in about March of 2022 as of June, I went to the first event with Lone Star, unpaid, just learning and sitting in and kind of learning the lay of the land, the ropes, because it is a big difference between single family real estate going into multifamily. It's a lot more dense. Single family is, you know, a lot more straightforward. It's just about, hey, it's a popularity contest. It's get the client, close them, make them feel good, all that versus multifamily. It's a lot more layered and dense. Uh, so, and I'm still learning that process. So I won't pretend to know everything. Uh, but that's kind of my background in acumen. You mentioned something as well that you work and live in New York City. I wanted to get back to that. Where do you live in New York City and where do you work? Where is our office in New York City? So I live in Tribeca, uh, <clears throat> just a couple blocks north of the One World Trade Center, which is where our office is. We recently took space at One World Trade, uh, which has been a very exciting development for us. It's, it's a, really like a surreal experience for Kent and myself because you're starting something from scratch, you're working from home, you're working out of makeshift offices, and for us to have a, a legitimate office, it really kind of puts a stamp of approval on what we're doing, where we're heading, and there's so many other things to say about the office as well, such as how it makes, not just us and how we feel walking into the office every day, but our team coming in, right? It makes them feel better, more important, like like their job, they take their job more seriously, right? Like we're all doing something really important. That's another reason, similarly, why we all wear suit and ties coming into the office, right? That dress code helps establish the frame that what we're doing is very important. We all take ourselves very seriously, right? This is not a joke and we're all dedicated and committed. And so the, the office, the dress code, all that is in alignment, which I really like. And so being able to craft that culture has been very important to me uh, because at the end of the day, if I'm going to work at a place where I don't like it, well, who cares how much money I'm making, right? So it's not about making the most money. It's about uh, having the ability to establish the, the team and culture and the day-to-day -day business that Kent and I really want to run. Where was the office before this? So we've bounced around a bunch. So we, most previ uh, right previously to One World Trade, we were actually working out of my old building because we had a lounge space and stuff so we would get the team coming in and uh, it's funny I actually made duplicate keys of my fob so that way employees would be able to fob into the elevator and get to the third floor lounge space where there's a conference room and there's working areas so we would kind of take over the table there and make it our workspace which I'm sure everyone there loved yeah right so it was a we work but it was a Rob work that's correct okay very so cool. we were there we also had a JV prior uh, with a, a private equity firm where we worked out of their office. So we've bounced around and uh, I think that's just, that's what it is, right? Bootstrapping. And now the joke is that we're in the World, World Trade Center. We still don't that have furniture. That escalated quickly, yeah, escalated quickly. No, but we still don't have furniture. So now we're just, uh, we're bootstrapping it in the World Trade Center, right? Or a scrappy startup, or a right? scrappy startup. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, that's incredible. And you mentioned New York. You live in New York, you live in Tribeca, you said. How long have you lived in the city for? Why do you live in New York? Unpack that, please. So I moved to New York in March of 2019. So I've lived there for four years. However, it's been a rocky four years to say the least. How so? <laughs> so from, from when did you move there, you said? Yeah, 2019? March of 2019. Okay. So the first year was, was a good year, but it was really in the throes of building the business and just my heart and soul and all my time was dedicated to the building the business. I 
quit going to the gym. I looked like I looked white as a ghost because I didn't go outside. I was super stressed out. I lost a ton of weight. My family was worried about me. Some would say you still look like a ghost. As you said yourself uh, yesterday, this is why I hate summer when we're in Cabo and we want the beach, but we won't get into that I'm, right now. I'm, I'm sweating right now. I don't yeah. like the heat. I'm I, wearing linen and I'm cool as a cucumber, but hey, you know, to each their own. So we, so my first year was, it was a, it was a vital year, obviously. It was still, it was in the early stages of building the business. It was very formative and critical. I also had a girlfriend at the time, so I didn't really get to experience the city or really do New York justice in that time. And then, as we all know, Something happened in March of 2020, and then yeah. I had yeah. left the city at that time <laughs> and uh, came back at the end of 2020. Did you meet anyone in that time or get connected with anyone in that time? No, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> All right, so one of the places I landed while I was bouncing around uh, outside of New York during that certain period of time, which you know why I'm not saying it is because on YouTube and other places, they don't like you to say that word. Right. So I guess we just won't say it. We'll just keep yeah. on that trend. Right. Craig and I listened to the All In podcast, which is the only podcast I listen to, and they similarly don't like to say certain words or something. Yeah, we it. don't want to reference a beer. Right. So, so summer of 2020, uh, I had ended up in Phoenix, Arizona. We were hanging out. I was staying at a friend's place, and you happened to be living there as well. Mm -hmm. And that's where you and I... Uh, got to know each other, got much closer. We had knew, known each other before, but Yeah, we... for sure. Then we met up at the Rosewood in Sand Hill. Shout out to the Rosewood in Sand Hill. Worked there for three summers uh, in college. Best job ever uh, as a pool attendant. Yep. It was great, but then we linked up there because I think you were just uh, looking to connect with other entrepreneurs, which is very you in hindsight. And of course, he might have been 20, 21, but he was wearing a pinstripe suit and, a suit and everything, which is... So on brand it hurts. This is actually a very rare form to not see you in a suit. It's actually a very running rare. joke. If you don't see Rob in a suit, as uh, many people who are hopefully watching will uh, know and appreciate and maybe chuckle at that. Absolutely. So, so yeah, so coming back to the, to the city at the end of 2020, uh, was reintegrating myself. Uh, so, long, I mean, I don't know where I'm taking this. Long story short, even though I've been in New York for four years, it still feels very new to me. It still feels like... I haven't fully established myself, so uh, that's something that I continue to do every day, and I try to just soak up the city. I'm, as you know, very passionate about New York. I love the city. Yeah, why do you like it so much, and why do you live there? Because clearly, you can live probably anywhere you want, right? I mean, obviously, Kent, who the other key principal will have on here at some point, is from Brooklyn, if I'm not mistaken, that's went right. to NYU Law, uh, really smart guy, uh, clearly, you know, tax attorney. He's got that acumen, which is incredible from a principal perspective. But, you know, why Why do you live in New York? What, what is your pool there? Because you can work anywhere. You know, I'm the only remote employee living in Phoenix. Uh, but why do you live in New York? What does it do for you? Well, so the story of my discovering New York is an interesting one. And it goes back to my previous life as a quarterback. So growing up from 10 to 19, I played football. My whole identity was tied into football. My dream was to get recruited to play football in college at an Ivy League, because that to me was the best of both worlds. They had competitive football programs, but also obviously world-class education. Did you ever think you were going to go pro out of curiosity? There was a time that I did have that dream. Right. Yeah. But did you think that? Like, no, like, it's silly to think, oh, I'm going to go pro, but like, did you actually think you were ever at one point like had the juice like that, or did you just see it as a cheat code to get into a really good school? There was probably at one point where I thought that that was the dream and that Fair I enough. would, but... It changed to, 
I'm going to use football as a way to get into the best colleges possible. Okay, gotcha. Right? As a fantastic student, I had you know good grades, good SAT score, good resume, and then I just you know the football thing would push me over the edge. I would be able to go to an Ivy League and make all that happen. Uh, however, I did not get any uh, serious looks by Ivy Leagues, uh, except to play receiver at Columbia. Neither did I. Makes you feel any better. So, so yeah. So, <laughs> however, fortunately, I went to Pittsburgh to Carnegie Mellon, and they recruited me to play football. However, when I got there, I knew deep in my heart that I didn't want, not want to play football anymore. I did not want to commit four years of my life to D3 football. I felt like there was more, there was a better use of my time. I'm extremely pragmatic with my time, and I just knew it in my heart. So I quit. I showed up and I quit. And that was a really, really rough experience. I call that an ego death, where I kind of lost yeah. my identity. I didn't know who I was because I identified oh, yeah. myself as a quarterback, as a football player. Yeah, no, I I went through mine, funny, an ego death right when I graduated uh, college, I went to the University of Arizona, and you know, you, you're in the Greek life system or whatever, you're in the clubs, you graduate, you're at the top, and then all of a sudden, you're 21, you're 22, you're 23, whenever you graduate, or you're older if that's you know what you did, and you realize very quickly you are at the bottom of the bottom of the bottom of life and society, if you will, in the workforce, and it is a sobering and humbling experience. So. My ego death looked a little bit different than yours, of course, and may look different than anyone who's watching, listening to this, but uh, I'm sure we've all been there and done that, at least from a, a, a man's perspective. I can't speak for you know, any woman what that looks like. Uh, I think and we'll, maybe we'll dive into uh, human dynamics in that regard and maybe the differences between men and women. Uh, but nonetheless, from a man's experience, I think, at least for me personally, I had that ego death right when I graduated college where I was getting into residential real estate and who the heck would ever do a deal with some 22-year-old kid who has a baby face, who has zero experience whatsoever, and you just got to hope and pray and you're likely going to get weeded out. Fortunately, I made it seven years and then I elected to leave when I was on top, if you will, but it is a huge, a huge undertaking to get into that world. So yeah, so that was my ego death, but back to you on what you were saying to your story. So the coaches said, okay, fine, you're, uh, <laughs> you're quitting, you know, you burned one of our quarterback slots for the year, uh, and it's summer, so you can't stay in the dorms. You can't, if you, you can't matriculate early, uh, so you have to leave. So I had just moved in to my awful dorm that didn't have an AC on the hottest day in Pittsburgh Oof. in July, and they, uh, they sent me away, so I needed to go somewhere and the closest place I had available to me was family in New York. So I took the bus, went to New York. That was my first real time spending time in New York and I, okay, I guess I'm spending the rest of the summer in New York now and I reached out to some friends who could connect me to people they knew in New York. Before you knew it, I had a social circle, I was experiencing the city, having fun and it was amazing and I fell in love and I vowed uh, vowed to myself that I would be back and I would live in, in the city. So that's awesome. And that was how, kind of the... Yeah, so that was your intro into it. Mm -hmm. So you're in Carnegie Mellon, you're in Pittsburgh, you identified New York as the spot you want to live, where you want to be. How long did you make it at college? Did you graduate college? So I spent uh, the first year at Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh and then I did a summer internship as a data analyst in New York. So that was my first full New York summer experience. And that was really the, the exciting time 
that really made me fall more in love with the city. And I remember distinctly, I was uh, crashing on couches, doing this and that, and I was on the phone with my dad in my friend's place, and he said, I know you're going to hate to hear this, but this is the best summer of your life. And I obviously hated to hear that because I said, no, I'm going to have way cooler experiences. I'm going to have way better summers. <laughs> I think summer 2022 was pretty fun when we went to Europe. But yeah, yeah. It was good. Yeah, different but, though. Yeah. But he, it's, it's funny because he was totally right. Yeah. And, and I don't know whether other summers have been better or will be better, but bottom line is when you're young like that and you kind of get such a new experience, it's so formative, right? You're on your own, you're working, you're living, and uh, that... I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll never How old were you at that, that point, sorry? I think I was maybe 20. Yeah, well, there's just a difference of... 19, 20, yeah. Yeah, there's basically, you know, that point of effectively zero responsibility, which we've all had at some point. You don't realize you're in that golden era and amazing time of your life until you're, you know, kind of in the working world. Maybe society's beat you up a bit, if you will. Um, so you can only appreciate that um, after the moment, but I can totally relate to that. Yeah. I didn't realize that my college day, oh yeah, you're not going to have those, you know, experience again. I mean, you hear it, you know it, but you don't know it. It's hard to appreciate yeah, the moment. Yeah, you it's can't appreciate it. anything until you're out of the, the temporary timestamp of that, you know, circumstance. Yeah. So, so first year, Carnegie Mellon, then internship, and then I went actually to London uh, for a study abroad semester, and that's where I actually, funny enough, went all in on real estate. So while in London, I ditched all my classes and was just going deep into real estate, joined a mentorship program, and was learning a ton, networking a bunch, and in London is when I decided, when I get home, I'm going to drop out and go full-time into real estate. So how old were you when you elected to, or how old did you think you were when you were wanting to, you think, drop out? 20. 20? Okay, got you. And then, so you're 20, you figure out you probably don't want to be in real estate anymore. Did you consider anything else? Why, why real estate? What did that look like for you? No, it wasn't like I was looking at a bunch of options and I was going to pick one. It was that I latched on to multifamily specifically and it was, it was not like I was pushing it, it was pulling me, right? Because I was introduced to multifamily. As you know, my family has a background in single family residential real estate. But getting introduced to multifamily, it started to pull. Shout out Menlo, Menlo Atherton Realty. Menlo Atherton Shout Realty. Shout out. Shout yeah. out. Yep. So, yeah, I basically was just continuing to invest more and more time into educating myself and going further and further into the business, starting to source deals, talk to brokers, learn to underwrite, understand the business, understand financing, uh, talking about the equity side as well. And so it came to a point where I was spending so much time on this pet project that it turned into more than a pet project and it, it turned to the point where it made more sense to commit and give this a shot full time rather than continue with my schoolwork. And didn't you also mention that you were kind of, you were looking for a way because you were done with football and this is just my understanding so please correct me if I'm wrong for the record, but you were looking into football, you were looking, or you, you were done with football and you had to channel your time into some other extracurricular activity, right? So I think you, if my memory serves me correct, which I have a phenomenal memory memory for anyone who knows, who knows me, you were maybe looking at the stock market, maybe mm -hmm. trying to day trade, something like that, which is very common. Uh, so 
Yeah, did you, did you, yeah, so what, yeah, what did that right. look like, yeah. Yeah, because after football, normally, right, growing up, you go to football practice after school, and you spend four hours there, and you watch film, and you got your weekends, you got your workouts on the side, and all that's gone, all of a sudden you've got all this free time. So I naturally wanted to find a way to allocate that new free time towards something productive. And right. for me, that was, yes, please, thank yeah. you. To me, that was uh, making money. So how do I make money? Well, naturally, I kind of looked at the stock market and got into that, studied that, studied day trading, swing trading and stuff. And how, how did that go? That did not go well. Oh. <laughs> the stock market's pretty hard to beat, last I checked. Yeah, exactly. So it's best, uh, just, to, just to insert something technical into this uh, so far, the more efficient a market is, the more it benefits you to be a passive participant in the market. And then the less efficient a market is, the more it makes sense to be an active participant. So given the fact that the stock market is one of the most liquid and efficient markets in the world, in my opinion, it really just makes the most sense to be passive, own index funds, set it and forget it, and not try to be an active investor. Now, however, when you look at real estate, depending on the sector, but real estate by and large is a much more inefficient market, right? You have off-market deals, you have hidden opportunities, you have different competitive advantages, and that's where it makes sense to be more hands-on, to be more active, to be buying and selling as an active participant. Gotcha, very cool, very cool. So you, you didn't have the stock market experience work, surprise, surprise. Uh, now you have all this extra time, you're going through, you know, looking at deals, you're joining a mastermind. What, so you're, you're, you come back from London, you're, you're basically have mentally committed to the fact that you want to do this full time. What happens next? You know, what mastermind did you join? Walk us through that. How did you even get into that mastermind? Because I'm pretty sure you had to get some support from someone else to even get into it. So why don't you unpack all of that? So my initial dream, because growing up, my dad was one of my best friends, basically, right? So my initial dream was... Todd's the man. Yeah. Todd's the man. Todd's the man. Yeah. The initial dream was him and I would start a business together and go into multifamily investing together. And I would drag him out of his single family world into the multifamily world. So I convinced him to put up the 10 grand at the time to join Joe Fairless's mentorship program. Right. And at the time it was like 10 grand. And I was, in my head I was thinking, sheesh, you know, if it were me, I wouldn't do that. But... Fortunately, uh, he was willing to, and you know my family had the ability to, and so he put up the money. I did all the work. I joined them. I mean, we both joined, but I took all the opportunity to maximize it. I jumped on the phone with everyone in the group. I uh, went through all the, the educational materials and really just tried to soak it up and make the most of it. So that was kind of the the start of the journey. And as you know, we could touch on later through that group is how I met Kent and him and I together ended up being the ones to start Lone Star because in the end my dad ended up you know just being too busy to really be able to give his all to a new venture understandably right he was still running Menla Atherton Realty which was a Silicon Valley uh, residential brokerage firm and I think before I don't know we touched on this yet but we are both from the Bay Area we're from the Mid Peninsula which is between San Jose and San Francisco, right in the middle. Um, there's Stanford University, then there's Menlo Park, and then there's Atherton. Uh, probably two of the most expensive zip codes in the nation. We're really fortunate to come from that area. Uh, I went to St. Francis High School, which is a mountain view. Shout out to anyone who went there. And then Rob went to Menlo Atherton High School. 
Uh, and so just now that we have that announced and yeah, everyone now, knows. Now, now everyone yeah. thinks we're spoiled rich kids. Exactly, perfect, yeah, <laughs> just, the, just the brand that we want. Now, yeah, uh, so I guess my whole self-made story is out the window. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So Just like the story in Dodgeball, he's like, yeah, with a little help of a $7 million loan from my dad or something like that. But yeah, nonetheless, so that's contextually just tells a little bit more of the story. Uh, and then, so you are in this mastermind. How old were you and how old was Kent when you guys became acquaintances and met each other? And how did that relationship kind of take on a life of its own? Yeah, we met a week before, I think, a week before my 21st birthday. And I think at the time he was 37 because uh, I'm now 26. He's, I think he's turning 43. That sounds about year. right, yeah. I, think that's, yeah, yeah. I know there's a 17 year difference between us. And the cool thing is, Pete Peterson and Steve Schwarzman, founders Schwarz. of Blackstone, they uh, they have a 17-year age gap as well, and uh, and Henry Kravis and uh, Jerry Colbert, Henry Kravis and Jerry Colbert, and of course George Roberts, the founders of KKR, also have a big age gap, right? Henry Kravis and George Roberts, they're cousins, same age. Two months apart, I think, and then Jerry Kohlberg, who was the you know the top IB guy at uh, Bear Stearns at the time. I think I, I think their age gap is somewhere close to 17 years as well. So I just look at that and go, okay, KKR, Blackstone, big age gap founders. That's good company. So you mean to say is that the stars are aligning here? Yeah, good. Yeah. I'm glad I picked the right firm. That's right. That's good. right. So you guys met. Where was Kent in his life? Uh, out of curiosity, I, if I'm not mistaken, for over a decade he was a senior tax attorney at MetLife, went to NYU Law, I think as I alluded to earlier, uh, but where was he in his life and how the heck did you convince someone who likely had a very steady job with pretty decent job security, security how the heck did you convince someone to say, oh yeah, well you know what, we should uh, do business together and you should stop what you're doing and Mr. Hey, I haven't had any work experience, I can fall flat in my face and work with a different firm, but I am a college dropout now. What does that look like? How the heck did you convince that, or and what did that look like? Because I think a lot of people would like to know kind of the, that process. Okay, sounds good. I'll answer this question, and I think we should switch topics. And okay, just, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, another time we can kind of talk more origin, but I don't want this to be just Fair some enough. huge origin story. Yeah. Uh, but we'll, we'll let people see what they think and stuff. So when Kent and I met, we didn't have a grand vision to start a business together. It was just, hey, you're working on this, I'm working on something similar, let's trade notes, let's collaborate, right? Together we'll probably be able to accomplish more. So it, it began with us just kind of underwriting and bidding on some of the same properties in Texas. And we started, well, why don't we underwrite deals together? Because he kind of had better deal flow, he's you know, a little more experienced, if you will, and I had more free time and willingness as well as potentially acumen and desire to dive into the numbers. So it was a good match where I focused on the numbers. He would kind of focus more on the big picture, talk to the brokers, operations, and stuff like that. And that was the inception of the relationship. We took it slow. We took it day by day, deal by deal. It wasn't until we actually put the first deal under contract where we kind of looked at the situation and said, all right, you know what? This has worked so far. Why don't we actually formalize this into a business and take it from there. Awesome, very cool. Now we're gonna segue into kind of the meat and potato. This will not be like every episode where we give the background, the origin, if you will. So the topic I wanted to speak today on is why multifamily? So why multifamily? Why do you like it? Why does it get you so excited? So multifamily is a very easy asset class to wrap your arms around. 
I really hope these birds are not coming through in the mics uh, that, that loudly because these birds are awful. Yeah, well, what are you going to do? So, so multifamily, we all have experienced multifamily one way or another, right? Either we've lived in a house, we've lived in an apartment, we're familiar with the, thank you. Thank you, how that works, right? Especially with my background, with my family's background in single family residential, understanding multifamily was uh, very natural for me. So just the, the unit economics of, you know, you've got apartments for rent, you've got not one, but a hundred, hundred plus, very simple P&L, right? You've got rent, rental income, you've got some other income like application fees, pet fees, late fees, uh, maybe utility billbacks and things like that. So very simple revenue, expenses are also pretty simple. You've got your payroll, marketing and admin expenses, utilities, insurance and taxes. So it's, it's really fundamentally a simple business, and which is why I think I was initially attracted to it and was able to wrap my arms around it, right? It's not super esoteric or kind of hard to penetrate. So it doesn't have the highest barrier to entry. However, something that I'm sure you agree and can appreciate is it may sound simple, and <laughs> the idea of buying a deal doesn't seem that difficult, but it, you know, once you actually go and transact and start handling just craziness with sellers and their financials and lenders. It's wrinkled, nuanced, complex, and challenging. There's just, there, it really is, there's just so much to it and when you don't have experience, you just underestimate the difficulty and as we've gained experience, it's kind of like Socrates, right? He says, I know so much, I know nothing, right? Knowledge humbles you and we've had now a ton of experience buying deals, selling deals, handling difficult situations, and now we're more humble, I would say, in our understanding and approach. So anyway, so that's kind of a tangent, but yeah, multifamily. That's the point of the show is tangents. Yeah, a little yeah, bit, yeah. Enough, yeah. So so just to kind of give a super high level, if, if people listening aren't familiar with multifamily or why it's so amazing, we have a national shortage of housing in America. We have an affordability crisis in America. Especially in the workforce too, because workforce housing is tough because if you're gonna make anything economically viable, to your point, which you're gonna get into, it's gotta be probably class A, it's gotta be super premium on the rents, uh, and you know, to get someone in there, it's tough, you gotta be in a really core location, and you gotta charge a premium, but not everyone is uber wealthy where they can afford that. So, and you know, with materials and labor costs, uh, it's just very challenging to make it viable. Right. Basically, there is a yeah. There's there's a, a supply demand imbalance, when, especially when you're talking about affordable housing. Not not big A affordable. Which, for those that aren't familiar, in our in our multifamily space, if you say capital A or big A affordable, that means affordable uh, subsidized programs like LIHTC, low income housing tax credits and other actually restricted rental housing. But literally affordable is just, hey, it's naturally occurring affordable housing, which falls in line of something like the rents are 30% of the median household income. Fair enough. So that's, uh, that sweet spot I really like because if you go below that, you're talking about class C. Operational nightmare. Yeah. Nightmare, tenants are a, a challenge, you have Real estate that is approaching obsolescence, so deferred maintenance is a big problem. 
the residual yeah. value of the real estate's a problem because you don't know where that deal's gonna be in five, 10 years as far as its condition and its attractiveness to the market. Yeah, it's kind of funny to say this, and I'm 28 years old, I'm born in 1994, but when I think of something being 20 years old, I'm like, oh, that's the 80s. Well, it's 2023 and it's actually 40 years old now. So to that point, it, you know, you wanna buy, you know, probably in the 80s or newer, would you say? What, what's kind of the, the oldest asset class we, we, you, you'd want to buy? Yeah, I would the say... The we can make sense of it, at least. Yeah, quality 80s is certainly still very good real estate. Uh, so the, the 1980s is a cuspy decade for real estate construction. Early 80s, you just don't know what you're going to get. Uh, in the, when you get into the 90s, it's pretty much... A certainty that you're going to have nine-foot ceilings, you're going to have PVC plumbing, uh, and all the kind of new good things uh, of good bones, good quality real estate, right? But in the 80s, uh, there's plenty of 80s deals. Most, I would probably say 80s deals have eight-foot ceilings. You have, uh, could be cast iron plumbing, could, uh, you could even see some flat roofs. You know, flat roof deals are mostly in the 70s, but flat roofs are a challenge. Uh, that we prefer to avoid. Boilers and chillers are something that we prefer to avoid as well uh, because those can be problematic and can pose major uh, one-time capital expenditures. And I remember actually early in the year, I want to say December, maybe December, January, we were looking and getting close to getting properties maybe 60s or 70s in Dallas at boilers and chillers that we elected to walk away from due to the deferred maintenance uh, nature of that. That's right. That's right. So. It's tricky because it's not like we're unique in this thought process. So the deals only just get more expensive and more competitive as they get nicer and nicer, right? So if we want to go and compete and buy a 2000s vintage deal, well, the pricing is going to reflect that. So there's no free lunch. It's not like, oh, it's very simple. Just buy a new deal, right? Yeah. It's not that simple. You're going to pay for it and that's going to reduce your projected return. So it's all about riding that sweet spot of, it's not about not taking risk. It's about taking risk wisely to where you get paid for it via a, a higher return. Yeah, like we'll buy, potentially we'll buy something in the 70s if you're buying it for a how could you not price, right? Uh, but similarly, we're not just gonna buy something that's 2023 20, because it's shiny and brand new. That might make no sense for a right. firm like us. We're looking for value add. Maybe for uh, a REIT, uh, they might wanna buy that new sexy thing. Or if we're doing ground up construction as a sponsor, with something like that, you may may you know want to develop something like that, and hopefully we get into development. But to that point, that's just not really the, the niche we're in. Right. So does that answer the uh, why multifamily? Yeah, I think that covers it. Is there any other tidbits as to why you like it? Just before we, we wrap on that subject. So another really awesome thing about multifamily is the access to agency financing. That's huge. What what, is, what does that mean? So I know, but. Oh, you know? I know. So we have, in this country, we have government-sponsored enterprises. For multifamily, we have Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. It's like when you buy a house, you, you know, Fannie and Freddie buy every single mortgage. Yeah, that's right. Similarly, in the commercial space, or in the multifamily space, Fannie and Freddie uh, are a major provider of debt capital to our space, which is amazing because it, it's cheap, because it's government-backed, and the liquidity is not as subject to the whims of the market. And more specifically, when we had the SVB banking crisis and things are uncertain, lenders are changing their credit parameters, they're blowing out spreads, they're doing all sorts of things, right? 
the agencies are there, still there, right? So when the world falls apart, the agencies are still there to provide liquidity to the housing market, right? Their mission is to provide liquidity to the housing market. So, and who do we bank with, by the way, just for the record, if anyone's concerned about us? Uh, SVB and First uh, Republic. Yeah, right, right, <laughs> right, 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 right. No, we bank with Chase. We have an uh, incredible relationship with Chase and JP Morgan, and it's only growing. And so they. You want to share what you just got invited into, or is that sure? Yeah. yeah. We, uh, well, yeah, I actually signed signed some documents today, so we'll see what where this goes. But yeah, we had a, a lovely meeting in, in our office uh, last week, where uh, the JP Morgan guys and the Chase guys came in and basically uh, invited Kent and myself to the JP Morgan private bank. So for those that don't know. Uh, Chase is broken up into a few divisions. You know, you got your retail banking, which is just Chase. You walk into the branch, and then they've got Chase Private Client. Chase Private Client is a little level up, a little higher touch. You know, you get some better benefits, free wires. That's a good benefit. And then a big step up from Chase Private Client is J.P. Morgan Private Bank. And so there's going to be some really cool things that we're going to be able to accomplish and have access to through the private bank. Uh, how many members are a part of something like this? I don't know. I think I don't know how many people are in the in the private bank. You you need what they say, and this is I think just to make you feel good, is they say that you need to have 10 million minimum in assets in order to get invited You're to the rich. bank. You're, right. But they really make exceptions, <laughs> as evidence. Right. They make right. they make plenty of exceptions. Well, who knows how wealthy you are? You know, it could be. Yeah. Uh, so. Yeah. I'll tell you one thing, all my money's not in the stock market, it's in real estate. So mm. the assets that they see that they're getting their hands on is not not ten million. Very cool. So but they're making an exception because we have a, a pretty great business banking relationship. You know, we have many millions uh, with Chase just through all across all the property accounts. So that's what attracted them to us or us attracted us to them and why they felt that it was a good idea to invite us to the private bank. So I think what you're referring to as far as numbers is the JP Morgan Reserve credit card. So, kind of a few years ago, I got super into credit cards and the whole traveling and the points and all that stuff. Now I'm kind of over it. Yeah. Uh, but Because you're rich. But the JP Morgan, right. And it's yeah. like, you know, once you can just buy the first class flight, you just buy the first class flight. Right. But. I wouldn't know, but right. Yeah. Right, right, right. So, <laughs> so with, um, so with JP Morgan, they have the reserve card, which is invite only, and you have to be a client of the private bank in order to get the JP Morgan reserve card. And I was explaining to you that 100,000 people in the world have an Amex black card, but only 5,000 people have this JP Morgan reserve card. Wow. So uh, that's status. Hopefully, I can uh, make this all happen and, and get the reserve card, and I'll, uh, Very good. I'll share that with everyone. So we like. Uh, multifamily because agency debt and all that. That was the original subject as to we got there, which is a massive tangent. But yes, we like it because of the debt access, and, you know, access to capital. Any other reasons, tax reasons why you like multifamily? Well, I'm thinking of reasons that are unique to multifamily okay. and not just. And we'll, we'll, ha we'll have a tax. We'll have a tax talk at some. We point. can have a yeah. tax talk. That'll yeah. be that'll be a whole another hour. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But for those of you listening that are interested in optimizing your taxes and utilizing depreciation to offset income. Talk to Craig. Yes. He'll, uh, he'll let you know about our investment opportunities, what we have going on. Uh, what's the best way to connect with you? Yes. Yeah, so you can get me on Instagram, LinkedIn, uh, or email. My uh, 
Email is C-R-A-I-G, Craig, at L-S-C-R-E.com. Uh, and then I-G, first, first name, C-R-A-I-G-M, and then McGrother, last name, M-C-G-R-O-U-T-H-E-R. Uh, so you can find me there if you're looking for anything like that. Yep, a lot of business getting done on Instagram these days. Yes, 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 for sure. For yeah, sure. and also if, if you uh, want to go to our website, lscre.com, you can do so and learn more information about... You get access Lone to our Star, deals, or yeah, newsletter. Fill out, fill out the new investor form, which uh, will trigger a prompt call from Craig. Yeah, So be, exactly. be warned if you fill out the investor no, form. No, in the next two weeks, and I'll be in you, Italy. Yeah. And if you don't get a prompt call from Craig when you fill out the new investor form, Call me so that I can uh, call me. have a yeah. talk to him, have yeah. a talk with him about uh, his... My lack of uh, speed. His work ethic, yes. or lack thereof. Yes, yes, yes. All right, well, I think we covered multifamily. Now I want to get into just a fun topic. Let's just talk about clothing for a second. Okay. I think a lot of, there's a lot of podcasts out there that just talk only about real estate. It's super intellectual and depth, but there's no charm or flavor to it. So let's talk about something with charm and flavor. Let's talk about your clothing, you know. What brands do you wear? How do you like to dress? How would you describe your, I guess, fashion sense? Okay, so we already touched on the office attire earlier, which, which is suits. Yeah, we're big on the suit and tie. I think it's super important. I, I do enjoy my suits. However, and where do you get your suits, by the way? Yeah. And where do you get your ties and all that? Right. So we, we we can't just gloss over that no, as no, if no, it's no, not no. a huge aspect of your wardrobe. No, of course, it's what I wear every day. Yeah. So, but the I was gonna say it's funny because when people meet me they assume that my suits are expensive and they oh you're the suit guy you must have a, a an expensive tailor or what whatever and all my suits are from suit supply not to say that suit what's supply, the price ranging from roughly would you say yeah i mean the average suit at suit supply these days is like 700 800 bucks and it's tailored it's it's really first class in my opinion i think it's a great value i uh, i really like the brand you can get yourself an armani suit or a ralph lauren or brooks brother which is probably the step <laughs> above you good there? Were you offended with the brands that I said, or did that just go down your, your throat funny? The wrong way. Okay, so it's not my uh, taste or discretion on, on uh, higher end suits. But yeah, you can get custom stuff. There's some people you hear that go to Hong Kong and got you know a tailor out there. But you know, for yep. the most part, you know, you can get an amazing suit uh, for you know custom for you know sub a thousand bucks, which is incredible. Yep. You get your travel dress shirts. It's like ninety bucks for that. They fit like a glove. Uh, I always like to go white collar on blue shirt. That's my favorite look. And the then, banker. Yeah, exactly. So that's where you get your suits from. Great value. What about your ties and whatnot? <sighs> wow. So the struggle is real, evidently. Ties, I'm big. <clears throat> it wasn't even a tequila shot. We're in Cabo, and he's out here uh, choking. I haven't had a sip of alcohol while we've been in Mexico so Yeah, far. exactly. Real Funny. personable of you, by the way. Funny enough, yeah. yeah. Real common man guy here. Doesn't drink in a Cabo. So... <laughs> So I like Hermes ties, mm. which is also a very cliche banker thing to do. But yeah, I think their ties are lovely. And I'm, I'm also very brand loyal. So I really like the idea that all my suits are suit supply. All my ties are Hermes. You know, some of them aren't, but for the most, most of them are. So I think that's a great way to go. And uh, okay, so that's, that's formal wear. What about like your day-to-day, -day, if you're going out on a date, if you're going out, to do anything, what does that look like on your end? Yeah, so it's interesting because dressing up formally is super easy, right? It's thoughtless. You wake up, you put the white shirt on, you put the suit on, you do the tie, you put your black you, you, Frankly, you have four, you get four suits, a charcoal, a navy, uh, a lighter navy, and then a pinstripe or, you there's, know, there's, something like that. And then, yeah. Yeah, then you get a blue shirt, 
you get two blue shirts, two white shirts. You're done. Maybe uh, a stripe or something like that. And then you get five ties. You've literally got, you know, a, a, a large array of, of mix and match. Exactly. And then two belts, two pairs of shoes. You're really, you're dialed. Or you can be like me and do side tab yes. adjusters instead of a belt. Yeah. <clears throat> um, I'm not a fan of belt loops. It's a very rare occasion. I don't even know. Yeah. I think you retired those. Yeah, I don't really do belt loops. Yeah. So, so the point was, formal super easy, right? The then it's like, hey, like honestly, like hey, not that there's an, an, an insignificant amount of money, but five thousand dollars, you bought yourself a fully decked out and dialed out, you know, work retire. Well like, appointed. No, no more than five grand, and you're, you're, you know what, too dialed. Yeah. Right. So then going <laughs> casual is also easy, right? For me, my casual is a black t-shirt, black jeans, black boots. So let's talk about where those are from. So before we do that though, I want to explain okay. the concept because yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the formal is super easy, the casual is super easy, the in the middle, that's the really hard part. The hard part is having the depth in your wardrobe to pull off the smart casual looks such as a pink dress shirt with white trousers and a like a mid blue check and, and just want to say this right now if you're in new york city or a place like that scottsdale miami you can probably get away away with wearing that year round but if you're in new york you, that better be between memorial to labor day you cannot wear that really outside of that i just want to pretty correct it a little bit but but you know what i mean it's it, it's yeah. frankly a fashion faux pas to wear that outside of that you know window i would say I for think, the most I, part i think technically you can't wear all white Memorial, outside yeah. of memorial. memorial, you can only memorial wear a white memorial. It's but labor. for the most part, you don't want to wear that in the the, the dead of fall or winter. Just maybe no. when looks slightly inappropriate, in my opinion. No, the the early stages of fall uh, and the early stages, or the the late stages of spring rather, I think are okay to wear white trousers. Certainly not all white. Uh, and, and then so you know, so the point is that that middle is where I've really been focusing and really been refining my wardrobe where okay, the refinement to actually have a pocket square. Because for work, I don't really wear a pocket square, but if I'm going on a date and I want to wear a sport coat, well, it's nice to have a cool pocket square with some flair, right? Right. It really just adds that that touch of thoughtfulness, elegance, and it's fun. You know, the, the whole dressing up, it, it's one, you know, one thing is you take yourself seriously. Like, why wouldn't I dress nicely if I... Probably gonna get better service. Yeah, totally. Yeah, you'll get the benefit of the doubt. You know, frankly, we are not the oldest people on Wall Street. Uh, or firm, you know, in, in New York. So, you know, dressing for the for the job that you want and what you want to take definitely is uh, important. And it's also just a personality thing as well for you. Yeah. Right. So yeah, so that middle has been a focus and has been exciting to, to build on. As far as the casual you mentioned, uh, everyone should take notes on these because in my opinion, Olabar Brown makes the best t-shirts uh, and they fit super well if you like them to be nice and cut. Uh, to show off all your hard work in the gym. Right, right. And, so, yeah, uh, so yeah, you like Olabar Brown. I like Lululemon for a t shirt, just a, a basic Lululemon shirt. Some sort of nice Theory or Vince make nice shirts as well. But, you know, I think in every wardrobe, you got to have three black tees, three white tees, other some neutral shirts, and that's just for shirts. And maybe if you want to get like a nice linen shirt like this, this is, I think this is the People Verse, kind of a random off shop brand. Then I'm wearing some Saks Fifth Ave linen pants here. Uh, linen pants are really nice. Yeah, linen pants are nice. I think linen's uh, a nice look, but you know, I think there's a lot of people out there that you know, and this is their their style. But I think for what we like is the more classic look, which is 
you know, probably nothing that has a, a blatant designer on it. You know, no just everything, logos. Yeah, everything very clean. Uh, shorts that probably you know are well above your knees if you're wearing them. Uh, anything else you'd like to add to you know that you wear a certain kind of jeans? I think APC only. Is that correct? Yeah, my my jeans are APC. Again, I'm very loyal to brands. So if I find a T-shirt I like, I want all my T-shirts to be just that one, right? Okay. It's, it's it's simpler. It's it's just what I like. And then so for jeans, I do APC. They fit me well, and they kind of it's a brand with a nice pedigree. It's a French brand with Japanese denim. Okay. So that's uh, that's a good that's a good one. Any jackets that you recommend? Well, it depends what kind of jackets we're talking about. My dream jacket when I got into fashion was the uh, Saint Laurent biker jacket. Which, leather. if you don't know, it's a little more aggro for, you know, some people. It's the, the G-E-Z, the rapper, a little bit of that look, if you will. Um, I don't think I can really wear that necessarily, but you do pull it off uh, in stride, I would Thank say. You. But not for me, for you. Each their own. Yep. There's more than one way to skin the cat, as they say. I think it's just such a classic look. Yeah. You know, the biker jacket, leather. It's just. It's and such... and I think you're kind of getting the general gist that whatever you're wearing, you want it to look good. You know, ideally, if you, if you were dropped off somehow in a spaceship a hundred years ago, mm. and if you're dropped off a spaceship a uh, hundred years from now, that would it would you look like silly or would it look cool? And I think these things do stand the test of time. Totally. Biker jacket. Stands the test time. Plain shirts that are well-fitted, you know, nice brands, so on and so forth. Love that. Yeah. Love that, yeah. So, and then you're obviously into watches. You want to talk about any of your pieces, what you like? Yeah. Or will watch talk be its own? I think that's got to be its own topic. We'll we'll save that. Let's let's save watches. Who am I kidding? We're getting the... uh, Yeah, I think we should cut it at like... uh, It's almost 4.30. Okay, almost 4.30. Very good. I think we should kind of start wrapping it up. Okay, okay. So we've gone through clothing. Is there any other things you want to mention regarding that while we're going to wrap this segment up? Hmm. No, I, I, mean, I don't know. I mean, obviously, I could talk clothes all day. Right, right, right. That is sneakers. Sneakers. Hmm. I mean, lately I've just been doing the. Uh, you want to show the uh, the suit supply? The suit supply, uh, just sneaker. Okay. Not expensive. Suit supply does a great job of. You could pro. It, it, the hypothetical situation. I know I cut you off, but I'm gonna probably do that a couple times as we do this show. The hypothetical. Hey, for whatever reason, oh, people are doing shots over there. The whole, for whatever reason, yeah, exactly, sickos. Uh, the whole, hey, if some, for whatever reason, my house burnt down and I had, you know, X amount of security policy or, you know, insurance policy for my clothing, if you did get dropped off only at suit supply, outside of, like, running shoes and athletic apparel, which is Lulu, Lulu um, yep. you could probably get everything dialed and sorted out at a suit supply. And, and you look steezy. It's incredible. I yeah. mean, I, I, I love the brand. I've uh, been shopping there spent probably i don't know twenty thousand at suit supply maybe yeah yeah light work yeah so on my end for sneakers golden gooses common projects i like that and then with just some plain pants call it from a hudson uh you know diesel makes some pretty decent pants you are apc i'll probably have to dabble into those just a nice cut jean plain shirts all that i live in scottsdale you know phoenix so you know it's either really hot so a lot of linen for me and then just plain stuff nothing too heavy nothing too you know, gaudy and whatnot. Just keep it simple. I think less is more in that regard. Yeah, and I think it just, it takes practice because the first time you wear a suit, it's really wearing you. Yeah. And you're not wearing it, and so it takes I still practice. don't tie my tie uh, according to the standards of some people in the office. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, we need to have like a tie seminar in the yeah. office. Maybe that'll be its own segment. Yeah, how to tie a tie. Yeah, yeah. fair enough, uh, cool. There's probably not enough videos on YouTube on how yeah, to Exactly, do that. no, we'll make the uh, one millionth. Awesome. That's correct. Well, I think we should wrap it there. Great little intro to there. 
If you are watching this, please give this a five-star review. Like, comment if you will. Uh, anything else? Any final thoughts? No. I'm excited about uh, doing this, and let's, let's keep it consistent, and let's provide yeah. a ton of value uh, to the listeners. Absolutely. On to the next.